Let us pray. Father, we come before you acknowledging our sins, acknowledging that to enter your presence, we don't just do it on our own account or merit, but we know we need a mediator. We need a priest. We need a sacrifice. We need acceptance into your presence. And as we sang, we need Christ. His blood, his sacrifice, his mediation, his righteousness, his obedience, his work. In him we stand. And nothing we can do apart from him. We confess to you our many sins. We confess to you sins of commission and sins of omission. Since when we rebelled against your will and defiantly did what we knew we are not to do. Since when we ceased to do what we knew how to do good and chose not to. Father, we pray your mercy and your forgiveness. And pray also for the Holy Spirit to come and help us and help anyone who opens the word in this your day, any community that gathers in the name of Christ, any place where his name is proclaimed, his word is read, his name invoked. Father, we pray your blessings upon them and us, and we pray that your fame and your reputation may be esteemed and loved throughout the earth. We pray for your kingdom to come, and for your will to be done. And Father, we pray that you have mercy on us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Our text this morning is Luke 13, Luke chapter 13. And even though we will cover only verses 7 to 9, I want us to read the context from verse 1. Luke 13, 1 through Nine. And the title of the sermon is The Gardener. The Word of God reads in Luke 13, 1, Now on the same occasion there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those eighteen on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed, that they were worse culprits than all other men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. 
But if not, cut it down. And that is the reading of the Word of God. I grew up in a small house in the Dominican Republic. And that small house had a little front yard. Very small. And I remember as a child that this gentleman would come every so often. don't remember the frequency. But he would come with a machete and with, a, with big scissors. And with a machete, he would take away the, the weeds that were outside of the wall. And with the scissors, he would cut and trim the grass and the trees. And I found it fascinating how beautiful the little yard looked after this gentleman came with his machete and pulled out the weeds and with his scissors to trim the grass and the, and the, and the trees. I have this friend, actually I'll be preaching in his church next week, and uh, he is an engineer, he's a pharmacist, he's an entrepreneur, he is a landowner, and he's a pastor. I mean, I've known few people who do so many things at the same time. And he has a saying, because he loves his farms and his land. He says, there are not beautiful garden that doesn't exist. What you find is killed gardener. And it's not the same. A very wise saying. This parable we read appears only in the Gospel of Luke. You cannot find it anywhere else in Scripture. Only Luke contains it. And it's the parable about a gardener. The individual we need to keep our our, our, our yard trimmed and our grass green, unless you do it yourself. I used to, but after a certain age, I decided that my life and my time was worth better things, and I decided to pay for it. With great pain, I pay for it, but I decided to pay for it. But we need to have those things in place, otherwise we would have the ugly house in the neighborhood, and nobody likes to be the owner of the ugly house. In fact, Proverbs says, you can tell who's a, who's a lazy person, who's a, who's a sluggard, who's a, a, a careless person by just going around his fence and looking at his house. And it is, to a point, true. Now, in this parable, Jesus brings it in the context of telling people who asked him about certain tragedies. Some people died in an accident. Others died in the hands of Pilate. And usually when tragedy happens, we seek to validate ourselves. Why do bad news sell on television? Why we never hear, oh, we have a wonderful morning in South Florida this morning. There's no traffic jams. There's no problems. The, road are, the roads are smooth. I hope you have a great day. That doesn't sell. What we like is what was the last killing, what was the last accident, what is the last tragedy, what is the last gossip. We're just drawn to that. And even if we don't watch news, then we are trapped by those clickbaits that we just run after. The latest thing about, look how this famous artist looks nowadays, and you want to see how they look. But you have to go through 80 pictures first and a lot of clickbaits to see if you fall for the trap of following the ad. Because that's what people like. And they were coming to Jesus saying, look what happened to them. Like, we're better. Jesus says, no, you're not any better. You will likewise perish. 
you too, if you don't repent, will fall into the hands of God's judgment. Passage we read this morning, that Darren read this morning. It's a sobering passage. My wife told me, I don't think you've ever preached from that text. And I told her, I don't think I ever have. It's a sobering text. It is better to go through life missing an eye or an arm or a leg than die having all of them. Because we will face God in judgment. And that is Jesus' point. And in that context, he brings the parable of the gardener. And this parable has three things, very simple. The symbols in the parable, the meaning of those symbols, and then some lessons we can draw from a parable about mercy and judgment in a context of judgment. The symbols are very plain. There's a vineyard, there's a landowner, there's a fig tree, and something needs to be done about it. Of course, the central figure in the parable is the garden. Now, the imagery of a vineyard, an orchard, a garden, is ubiquitous, present, prevalent in all of the scriptures. In the 66 books of the Bible, you find, or at least in redemptive history, I'm not sure, I'm not ready to say in the 66 books of the Bible, but you find in redemptive history, especially in the Old Testament, this imagery of a vineyard, a garden, or an orchard. Adam was put in a garden at creation that he had to tend and to keep and to bring to fruition. God made it perfect, but Adam had to improve on it. Adam had to make it larger, better, greater, keep it. He failed. The children of Cain, right after the fall, built cities. God told them, spread. They said, we're not going to spread. Let us build cities, rather, and stay in place. God destroys the earth as a result of sin and the violence on earth. And when Noah comes out of the ark, first thing he does, he plants a vineyard. Once again, men decide to stay in cities instead of spreading out. They build a tower of Babylon or Babel. And in that tower, God confuses the languages and forces them to scatter. And from there on, you see in the history of redemption, this presence of a plantation of a vineyard of an orchard. Israel is raised as an agrarian community in Egypt. And they are planted in Canaan. And you see the whole distribution of the land and the life of the people in the context of an agrarian community. Not an industrial community, and I'm not, I'm not saying anything negative against industrial communities or cities. I'm just describing how Scripture presents the connection between a garden and the story of redemption. A garden was lost at the beginning. A garden is gained at the end. The same way the Bible starts in a garden, it ends in Revelation 21 and 22, garden. Jesus promises the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Even in Islam, which is a copycat, a bad copycat of the Old Testament, their paradise is a garden because they live in the desert. So how are we supposed to consider or envision eternity and glory as a beautiful, lush, fruitful 
green garden. That is tied to the history of redemption. There were two cherubim with flaming swords guarding the garden when Adam sinned. There are two angels sitting in the garden of the tomb when Jesus rose from the dead. It's, it's there. The parallelism continues and runs through Scripture. And when Jesus brings this parable about a gardener, he's simply using a very common figure for any Jew acquainted with the Old Testament. In the book of Isaiah, this picture of the garden and the gardener and the vineyard is presented frequently. In Isaiah 5.1, God describes this about Israel. Let me now sing for my beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. He's talking about God and Israel. My beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. And Jesus used many times parables about a landowner and a vineyard pulling from those illustrations in Isaiah. Isaiah 27.1, again, figurative language about Israel. I, the Lord, am its keeper. I water it every moment, lest anyone damage it. I guard it night and day. And again, this is God describing his relationship to his people at that moment contained in the nation of Israel. Jeremiah 12.10, an indictment about the leaders in Israel who harmed and tarnished and abused God's people. And God speaks against those shepherds who ruined his vineyard, who served themselves, who tended themselves, who cared for themselves. And God indicts them because instead of being good shepherds of his people and of his property, they just went to serve themselves. In Ezekiel, the prophet is talking to those who had been already exiled. And they are close to the river Kebar. And in that context, already away from Israel, already out of their land, Ezekiel describes to them their homeland as, Your mother was like a vine in your vineyard. And continues on until we find the Gospels. And in the Gospels, then, we find all of those parables that have to do with God and a vineyard. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Or the kingdom of heaven is like a man who has two sons and asked them, go work in my vineyard. Or a man, uh, the kingdom of God is like a man who had a vineyard and rented it to vine growers. Constant repetition of the same imagery. And here we find another parable relating God to his people illustrated with a vineyard, a landowner, and some who were not too faithful. But in this case, that is not being the context. The context is judgment. Now, what is the meaning of the symbols? I think it's pretty obvious, even from reading the Old Testament. And I just read you some passages, because we could spend the morning going over text after text in the Old Testament, describing that God is the owner, that the vineyard is his people, and at the moment this parable is written, the vineyard is Israel. We can say, oh, the vineyard is the church. Yes, but when Jesus gave the parable, that church, that people of God, 
was contained in a nation, the nation of Israel. And that's the vineyard. The fig tree is also a picture of Israel in many parables. Jesus describes Israel as a fig tree. And then we find this gardener, this gentleman who comes and keeps and takes care of the vineyard. It is fascinating to me that the generation Jesus is talking to had rejected him already three years. At this context, at this point in the story of Jesus' ministry, three years had passed since he started preaching the kingdom and since his baptism. So when the parable says, for three years I have come looking for fruit out of this fig tree, Jesus is telling the Jews, I've been preaching to you three years and nothing has happened as a result. And there was still about another year to go, not exactly 12 months, maybe six more months or so of Jesus' ministry. Reason why he says, let me dig around it and fertilize it and water it for another year. Like we're in 22, well, let me go to 2023 and, 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 and work with a fig tree. Six months of that year went by and Jesus ended his earthly ministry. Now a point about the parable. This parable, for many, many, many years, perhaps decades, I read it as a moralistic parable. What do I mean by that? Well, I'll tell you what somebody called James Smith interprets of the parable. And I submit to you that perhaps, perhaps, I'm not, I'm not a prophet, but perhaps this is the way you and I have been taught this parable and have read it ourselves. James Smith says about this parable, a fruitless fig tree or a barren, useless professor. Not professor in school, a professor of the faith a Christian by name. If you are planted in his vineyard, God expects you to bring forth fruit. That is true. The owner of the vineyard comes and seeks fruit. He comes again and again, and he finds none. He passes the solemn sentence, cut it down. Why should you use the soil? Or why should it use the soil? It is a fearful sentence, he says. Go cut that barren professor down. The fruitless professor is to be cut down and committed to the eternal flames of hell. So if you're anything like me, or if you have heard this before, this is what you have heard. Christianity demands that we bear fruit. That is true. Christianity demands that we prove our faith by our works. That is true. There are a lot of people who call themselves Christians, but their lives deny it. That is true. Those are the fig tree, the barren professor. They will be cut down. Perhaps that's what you've heard about this parable. Well, I'm here to tell you that that is not the teaching of the parable. Even though all of that is true, that's not the teaching of the parable. I have a friend who has an amazing ability. He takes any story with factual elements and converts it into a complete lie 
and everybody rolls on the floor listening to the invented story. But if you go piece by piece, every element is true. It just has this ability to make of it a joke that it's a lie. Well, everything this James Smith says in the parable is true. But it is not true of this parable. Jesus is not giving the parable to the Jews to talk to them about judgment and explain to them that if their, fruits, if their faith does not have fruit, they will be cast into hell. That is not the purpose of the parable. I'll tell you who interpreted this parable right. A man named Cornelius Lapid, who was a, also 16th century Bible commentator who was a Roman Catholic priest. <gasps> Roman Catholic priest? Yes! They too read the Bible. They do study it, and some of them, many of them, are also Christians, even though we disagree with a lot of what they believe. And this Cornelius Lapide writes, the fig tree represents the synagogue of the Jews, to which Christ came to cultivate it by his preaching. Christ, therefore, is the keeper of the vine to whom God said, cut it down, talking of the nation. Of Israel. The Protestant traditional interpretation, when you collect what Protestants have said about the parable is, in this parable the owner is generally regarded as representing God the Father, who had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and came seeking fruit. And the gardener is Jesus. So this parable is about Jesus. And I remind you that when you're reading your Bible, it doesn't matter what section you are, what story you're in, the main subject of the Bible, the whole purpose of the Bible, the main character of the Bible is not you or me, it's Jesus. And the parable is about him. And remember the context. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And it is in that context that Jesus appears as that gardener, talking to his master, who's calling him to be done with the fig tree of Israel. Jesus came as a sign to Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies regarding Messiah. And he came as a sign, but the Jews rejected him. Jesus taught as no one had ever taught him. He spoke with an authority that the people said, no one has ever spoken that way. He made signs and miracles that the people said, we have never seen anything like this. And yet, the people did not believe. They saw a huge miracle, and the next day, they would say, show us a sign to believe in you. They say, what? What about the, the multitudes who ate yesterday? They were completely hardened. They would see the dead walking, the blind see, and the deaf talking. Show us a sign and we will believe. Jesus relented judgment. All of, those, of, of, of that time of his ministry and then some. Because Israel did not know the day of their visitation, to use the language of First Peter. So in that parable, 
Jesus is simply telling them, you guys are here hanging by a thread because I'm the servant is holding the axe from the master who wants to cut the tree down. It's like that famous sermon from Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And he describes how we are just walking, rebelling, defying, blaspheming the one who has us in his hands and all he needs to do is open them. And we fall to the abyss. And here's Jesus saying, that's me. I am the servant who's interceding for you guys while you remain in your hardness. But be sure that unless you repent, you will likewise perish. That's the context of the parable. Now, what lessons can we get from the parable? Countless lessons. We could preach 20 sermons on the lessons of the parable. But one of them is that the servant spared at least for a while the fruitless tree. Just hold on. Let me dig around it. Let me just do some trenches. Let me put water. Let me put fertilizer. Hold on. Let's see what we, what we do with this tree. And, and if it doesn't work, okay, we cut it down. But let me work with it. Now, the servant spared the fig tree for a while. But remember that God did not spare his son on the cross. When the point at Gethsemane came, when Jesus says, if there's any other way, is it possible to pass this cup from me? No, it's not possible. You have to go to the cross. And Jesus went to the cross. He was delivered for us all. Second lesson is that God yielded to the request of his servant. The landowner accepted the deal. Oh, you don't want me to cut it now? Okay. Leave it alone, sir. Hold on. Let me, let me work with it. God's mercy many times is misleading. Paul speaks of that in Romans 2. Beware or behold the severity and the patience of the Lord. But don't let that patience mislead you. Because as God is being patient, withholding and relenting judgment, Paul says you are accruing for yourself wrath for the day of wrath. My wife and I frequently speak about the deceit of the finance industry. And I'm sorry, Darren, I know you're a banker. I'm sorry to say this, but you know what I'm saying. The deceit of the financial institutions with money. Get this credit card. Open your Amazon card and you get a $150 gift. It happens once you have your Amazon card. You start ordering and ordering and ordering. And at the end of the month, you have three, $4,000 of merchandise. And what do you get? Minimum payment, $122. It's awesome. I bought $4,000 of things and I only owe $122. And you keep doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. And when you hit the 50000 mark, your minimum payment is $500. And lo and behold, you've spent 10 years paying minimum, minimum payment of only interest. You still owe 50000 And you spend the rest of your life enslaved to those institutions. We pay for our homes in 30 years two and a half times their cost because we have to pay compound interest. And that only does add and add and add to the compound interest, to the debt. Paul says that's exactly what we do when we take God's mercy for granted. You can do whatever you want. 
And nothing is going to happen to you. You will live your 60, 70, 80, 90 years. Nothing will happen to you. But one day, you will meet your maker. And one day, you will receive your debt with compound interest. And Paul says, don't take God for granted. Because all you're doing is accruing interest with him. This parable is a reminder of the patience and the mercy and how God relents judgment while at the same time, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Because the servant says, please bear the tree for one more year. If we don't get anything out of it, it's okay. You can cut it. What happened in the year 70? General Titus went to Jerusalem and swept it. And not a rock or a stone upon a stone was left. Why? Because they did not know the day of their visitation and the city was swept. Don't play with God's mercy. But he is kind and patient. There's something we don't realize when, when we read a short passage as the one I read to you. But you know, where does this chapter end? And I know Luke didn't divide it in chapter and verses. It was done later. But you know, where does chapter 13 end? Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Because it was in kindness and in mercy that he said, let me dig around. Please don't cut it yet. Let me work with it. Remember when my kids were little that I did an impersonation of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. And I scared them. They were little. We were having family worship. We were sitting around. They were eight, three, five, whatever they were. And I started weeping and wailing as I think the text says that when Jesus stood up and saw the city from the distance, he started wailing and weeping and saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets and you stone those who are sent to you. How many times I wished to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. And now your house is left desolate. So even this judgment comes and comes for sure with the grief and the pain of God who relents judgment because he doesn't want anyone to perish but all to come to repentance. And that tension of God's desire versus God's decreed will. God's desire is for none to perish. That doesn't mean all will be saved because, because God decreed it otherwise. Don't ask me to explain it to you. I don't understand it. The Bible says both. But it is Jesus, not us who relents God's judgment. Please remember that. I was talking to a friend the other day, and he says, do you notice that when we sin, because we all carry this Roman Catholic inside, we want to find our own ways to do penance. So you get angry at your wife, or at your husband, or at one of the children, and you really explode, and for the next three days, you're the meekest, quietest, kindest person on the planet. Why is that? Because we're trying to do penance. I blew it. I don't know how to exactly say, please forgive me. I blew it. I was an idiot. I was a jerk. 
I'm sorry. So let me be nice. Oh, I'm thirsty. Here's water. Do you want me to put some eyes on it? Right? Because we're just doing penance. And when the pains of our sins disappear, we go back to being the standard idiot we are. Normally, that's what happens. Well, I have news for you. We do that because somehow we want to appease for our sins. Somehow we want to atone for our sins. And somehow we want to contribute something to earning God's forgiveness. He does nothing. All of our forgiveness, 100% of it, all of the merit, all of the grace, all of the drawing God, God's mercy instead of his judgment, he's 100% on Jesus, 0% in us. Never forget the gospel, especially at your worst, because that's when we need it the most. The tree was barren and helpless. The gardener had to dig around it, put water, fertilize it, and make it fruitful. The tree couldn't do anything for itself. And we're the tree. Parable reminds us of God's irrevocable judgment, of course. Because eventually Israel was stopped. When you visit Jerusalem today, you can't help see the prophecy that Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles. Muslims from Syria, from Palestine, from all over are there. There's a dome of the rock, there's a mosque. Not a Jewish temple, not a Christian church. Why? Because God delivered them over. Now, whether you are pre-mill or amill or historical pre-mill, whatever, they were trampled under the Gentiles. God gave them over because of their sin. Because God's judgment is irrevocable. In the meantime, the advice of Scripture is call on the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the evil man leave his way and turn to the Lord, who will be kind and merciful to forgive. This morning I woke up with a WhatsApp of a co-worker saying, such and such already died. She was healthy, she was fine. Last year she was diagnosed with leukemia. Everything was going to turn out fine. It was in December of last year. Today they are bearing Because we don't know. Call on the Lord while he may be found. Call on the Lord while he's near. Now, we can't leave. We can't stop without considering the gardener. The gardener was patient. He did not wield the axe. He had the axe. He could have killed the tree right away. But he says, instead of the axe, let me get a shovel and a pick and dig a hole around it. Because that's Jesus. He didn't want to destroy the tree right away. Jesus is very different from us, isn't he? You know, my, my neighbor played a trick on me. I, I didn't do this maliciously, but I had to laugh. I hate palm trees. I'm sorry I hate them. If you have palm trees, you see this palm, when they, when these, these branches, when they get dry, they're just there hanging. The ugliest thing on planet Earth, when they fall, it's even worse. 
I just hate them. The way I break them and throw them into the trash can, it's with anger, with malice, viciously. Well, I had the last of my palm trees, but it was right at the border with my neighbor. I said, well, not sure if this is this part of my property. And this is like a four-inch or six-inch thing. Let me bring my fence through here. And I left the palm tree there. Well, the neighbor decided also to fix their fence. And they said, oh, no, no, no. This is your tree. They built their tree on the other side, and now I have the stupid palm tree on my side. So once in a while, I have to go and just fight the branches. Jesus is not like me. He would have found a way to make the palm tree nicer if it were here. Sadly, we do that to one another. We are prompt to discard one another. We are prompt to cut one another when things are not the way we want. I was sharing with, with Freddie this morning how disappointed we are when somebody leaves the church, how sad we become, how so many times we even forget about them. Even if they served for years, oh, you're leaving? Then I don't want anything to do with you. Not Jesus. He digs around the tree. He puts water on it. He fertilizes it. The gardener labored harder over the unfruitful tree. What a comfort. What a comfort when we are unfruitful to realize Jesus must be praying harder for me now. Jesus must be interceding harder for me now because I'm going through this dry time. The gardener does not break the bruised reed. Remember that passage in Isaiah 42? Behold my servant. He will not break the bruised reed. He's not like me with a palm tree. You have this lamp that is kind of... You have those mosquito lamps in your backyard? I hate them because they look very nice when they are new. But then the oil is super expensive. And then when they start like, like draining out, you just see this smoke and this thing and it's smelly. And you just get rid of them and put water on them. Forget about it. I'm not interested in this smoke. Jesus doesn't do that. He has a smoking flax. He doesn't put it out. He sees a limb that is kind of hanging there and looks ugly. He doesn't cut it. Because his servant, God said, is meek and mild. He doesn't raise his voice on the street. He's not a boisterous person. He's not, a, he's not feisty. He's not a fighting man. That's Jesus. Consider that gardener. He doesn't give up on his own. He told his father, of those you gave me, I lost no one except the son of perdition. And that is our comfort. He will lose none. The spirit will complete the work God started in us until the day of Christ. Sometimes you look back on 42 years of professing the faith and you say, dude, I haven't grown. I don't see any advance. I see myself struggling with the same issues I struggled when I was 17. Yes, but the Spirit will carve the image of Christ in you and in me and will complete his work until the day of Christ. Jesus will present himself a bride that is spotless and without wrinkle, perfectly dressed, perfectly ironed, white clothed, white linen, 
even though she was dirty and filthy, the church is an ugly garden today, but the gardener will finish his work. And that is our consolation. He will make us appear unmarred before God. And it's hard to imagine. And by the way, whenever you have a fight with another Christian or another Christian takes you off or upsets you, remember, just as you expect and hope to be sanctified to the end, God will do it to them as well. Remember, God will not judge them to vindicate you. They too are his people. Both of you, including me, are a mess. Like that book that Arturo Perez is recently publishing. The problem is me. I am the problem. Not the other. There's a fight. There's a problem. There's a discussion, an argument in the marriage. Whose fault is it? I am the problem. It's my fault. When you take that posture, I am the problem. But please be patient with me. God will sanctify me completely. You not only have hope in yourself, not in yourself, but in the work of God in you, but you also treat your partner and your neighbor with kindness. And finally, we will rejoice. We may struggle now, we may fight now, we may have difficulties now, but we will rejoice. As the psalmist says, I will rejoice when I awake in his righteousness. When we awake in the image and the semblance of being like he is, as First John says, we will be satisfied. This side of eternity, nothing brings satisfaction. Guaranteed. You don't need more money. You don't need a better car. You don't need a bigger house. You don't need a better husband or a better spouse or a better wife. You don't need more children or less children. You don't need them to go to school or come back from school. You don't need anything. What you need to be satisfied is on the other side. When we awake and see him as he is and see us in the image and in the likeness of who he is, we shall be satisfied. And that is guaranteed because the gardener promised it and he will do it. Let's pray. Father, take your word and apply it according to what we need and use it for your purpose. And help us, Father, to live in hope and especially help us to consider him who did not regard equality with you something to grasp but emptied himself to come and give us hope by our salvation, by our assurance, by our security, by our inheritance with his own blood. And may his name be exalted, and may we remember him even in our worst times, because for him, by him, and through him are all things, and to him alone be the glory forevermore. Amen.